as Bob mentioned, coming to the finish line of our study example. We've gotten to know better some pretty well-known names. If you've been around church for a while, some of the names, most of the names we've looked at in this series have been pretty familiar to you. Uh, If you're new, great, good to have you here. Maybe you discovered some things about these folks, but we've heard about Noah and Abraham and Moses, all fairly well-known examples of faith. That's why they're in this chapter. We spent four weeks ago some time with Enoch, a little more obscure, a little less known guy because there's not much written about him, but we found out he walked with God and he was not because God took him, which is pretty cool in itself. So four weeks, here's the fifth week, we are approaching and going to cross the finish line of Hebrews chapter 11 today. But I want to warn you in advance, there's going to be some surprises at the finish line, some unexpected ideas, some names we might not expect to see at a place like this. In fact, our experience of the finish line of this series might be a little bit like the experience of some kids last Sunday at the Arizona Diamondbacks spring training game, because they got to experience a surprise at their finish line. I want to tell you in advance, I'm kind of a sucker for those surprise military welcome home videos. You got anyone else like those? They're all over Facebook and I'm, oh, there's another, the kid's crying, the mom's crying. This is one of those videos. Because to their credit, the Diamondbacks figured out a way in their spring training game just last Sunday uh, to bring home a man named Sean Trickett, who is a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Without the kids knowing he was back, they chose these three kids, his three children, to be part of a hot dog race. Now, if you've been to a Diamondback game, you know the hot dog race is not an eating race. They're not eating hot dogs. They are becoming hot dogs. They put them in these plastic hot dog outfits, and they run around the track. And these kids didn't realize that waiting for them at the finish line was going to be their dad, recently back from the Middle East. Let's see what happened last Sunday. And waiting for them at home at the finish line is their father, Sean Trickett, who is just returning home from Afghanistan, where he served as I can't take take the tears of the little kids. That's just powerful. I love that. Now put yourself in the place of those kids. Approaching the finish line, there was a surprise waiting for them. And we've got something in common with them, like I said, because we're approaching a different kind of finish line today, the last sermon in this series, and there are some surprises waiting for us as well. I would tell you what they are, but then they wouldn't be surprises, right? We're going to find them as we go. Let's pray about it. Lord, thank you for this passage that's meant so much and inspired us to follow you well. We pray that would happen again today and that the surprises would catch our attention and change our lives. Would you speak? We're your servants and we are listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So a variety of uh, surprises here. The first surprise we're going to notice is there will be surprising people at the finish line of Hebrews chapter 11. Open your Bibles with me if you would, and I'm going to start reading at verse 32. Hebrews 11:32 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women receive back their dead by resurrection. Let's stop down in the middle of that last verse. These are, well, first of all, we notice a difference, right? Up till now in this chapter, a name is mentioned and several verses kind of summarize that person's story of faith. And a time is taken to explain, to flesh out the story. That's not the case here. Today's more of a mixed bag, a hodgepodge of names and moments that would be familiar to the readers. This book, as you can tell from the name, the book of Hebrews, was written to first century Christians of Jewish background who grew up in a context where they were always immersed in the scriptures. They knew the stories, they knew the names. And so the readers of Hebrews, as they heard the names we just heard, they would flash to stories of their lives. Let's face it, that's not as true of us today. Chances are good at least a couple of those names are very unfamiliar to most of us in this room. We don't know the Bible like the readers did. But by the way, there's a chance to fix that. Uh, Here at Heights, we have a class that I teach on Tuesday nights. It's called Ascent. And it's a chance over the course of 27 weeks, three nine-week sessions, to dig deeper and to go further. Uh, and, And I love teaching Ascent. I hope the people who are in it enjoy it. I mention it today because starting a week from Tuesday, we start our third nine-week session. And you're all invited to join, well, not all, there wouldn't be room for you all, but you're invited to sign up and be a part of that. If you're part of our online campus, by the way, we, uh, we invite you to be there as well, but maybe not in person. If you can't uh, make it here, we do have all our videos available online. So by doing something like Ascent, you can get to know these names and these events better. Okay, so end of commercial. Let's go back to the passage. What we have here are some names that the readers would go, oh yeah, I know that story. And he says, time would fail me, and time would fail us this morning, too, if we unpacked all six of those names that were mentioned. I'm just going to look at one of them. I think one of my favorite stories of the entire Old Testament, Gideon, is mentioned here. I I love Gideon. Any any other Gideon fans here? Do Do you like this guy? His story is amazing, because he lives at a time when Israel is under occupation. The bad guys at his day were the Midianites, one of the nations nearby, who had conquered Israel, and they were living under the occupation of Midian. And so they were paying taxes to this foreign nation. They were living under oppression. And here's, when, when he comes into the story, Gideon's basically working the black market, trying to make a buck, trying to get by. And God comes out of nowhere and says to him, hey, mighty warrior, I'm going to use you to drive off the bad guys. And Gideon has a very human reaction. What are you talking about, mighty warrior? You must be looking at somebody else. I'm just a guy. I'm just, I, I, don't, I don't deserve this. And over the course of a chapter and a half or so in the book of Judges, we watch this story unfold as Gideon dares to take God at his word, and God provides this huge army of Israelites to help him do what God has called him to do. And he must have been thrilled. Look at all the help I've got, 30,000 warriors. And God says, your army's too big. Again, Gideon must, what? What do you mean? <laughs> There's no such thing. We're going to war. I need every hand I can get. And God says, no, 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 no. I know you folks. I know that if you win now with that much help, you're going to pat yourselves on the back. You're going to say, look what we did. I want you to say, look what God did. So over the course of a couple of exercises, we won't go into now, God strips away 99% of Gideon's army. He has to go to war with 300 soldiers against a massive army of Midianites. And, of course, God does his thing, and the Israelites win supernaturally because this man dared to take God at his word. 
That's what all these people of faith did. They had to swim upstream against their culture, against what was normal in their day. They had to do things that looked outlandish or even stupid because God told them to. And Gideon was one of them. So, so his name stands out and for me because I love that story so well. But what also stands out to me is these are surprising names to find at the end of this chapter. Because, guess what? They weren't perfect people. Gideon needed constant reassurance. He asked for it over and over, and God gave it. And then at one time, God gave a reassurance he didn't even ask for. Because this guy lacked confidence. He, he wasn't certain. God had to keep telling him, yes, this is me. He wasn't the only imperfect name mentioned in this list. Samson is mentioned there. A man who had questionable taste in women, to say the least, right? David is mentioned there. A man who had too many women and who had to kill a guy to get one of them. The earlier names we studied also weren't perfect. The Bible is, is brutal when it relates the entire lives of these people, right? Abraham, the father of the nation, John talked about him daring to move off and go where he didn't know where he was headed, but God told him to. Great example of faith. But once he got there, he lied about his wife twice because he was afraid to get beaten up because she was so pretty. He said, no, she's my sister. Moses, famous name, guy we studied in this series as well, he, when God finally comes into his life and says, here's what I want you to do, Moses spends a chapter and a half arguing with God. And God makes him write it down in his book <laughs> to show just how much he was off, off track. He, he sounds kind of whiny at the end. He says, Lord, send anybody but me. And God finally says, no, it's you. And then God tells him does some pretty amazing things. These guys aren't perfect. And if you've been telling yourself as we've gone through this series, man, I just, <laughs> I don't qualify for my name to show up on a list like this. No, 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 no. I'm nothing like those folks. Well, they aren't perfect either, friends. So let's recognize that, that it's okay to have some of these moments. It's, you can still be held up by God as an example of faith. In fact, I think one of the most transparent prayers in all of the New Testament is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, when there's a, a man whose son is suffering and, and comes to Jesus, to Jesus, can you please help my boy? Is it possible for you to heal him? And, and Jesus, what, what do you mean if it's possible? All things are possible for those who believe. And then this man responds with a beautiful prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Oof. Can you pray that prayer? I could pray that prayer. Because <laughs> there's things that I read and things I know God calls me to do or things the Bible says happened. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I believe that. And there's that other side. Those things are a little harder to grasp, a little harder to get my head wrapped around, a little harder to say, is that really what God's calling me to do? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Each one of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 could have prayed that prayer. And yet God holds them up. They might be surprising to us to find some of those names mentioned in a place like this, but they're there. After the six names, there are ten kinds of winds that are mentioned in this section. And there's a whole variety of them. And like I said, to a Hebrew reader, oh, they're flashing on the stories from the Old Testament scriptures. Time would fail me to go over even more than one of those, but I do want to mention one of them. The passage talks about people by faith quenching the power of fire. 
I believe it's pretty clearly a reference to a story in the book of Daniel. You might remember Daniel's story. He was a faithful Israelite, part of the group that was taken away, kidnapped out of their nation when Babylon came and wiped them out. And they were taken back to Babylon as sort of hostages, sort of citizens. Daniel and his friends became pretty significant folks in Babylon, living for the God of Israel in the midst of a culture that was very hostile to their God. Does that sound familiar to you? (laughs) Okay. They got it. They knew what it was to swim against the current of their day. And amidst, amidst the stories that are pretty fascinating in Daniel 1 through 6 especially, there's a story of a day when the king, Nebuchadnezzar, decided, because people told him he should, to build a big statue of himself, to make himself into a god, and to call on all the citizens of Babylon to bow down before this idol. And of course, the, the Jewish believers in Babylon couldn't do that. It was a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. They're trying to live for God in a hostile environment. No, we can't. And so when the trumpet blew and everyone bowed down, we're not sure where Daniel was that day, but these other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose names I love to say, they stood. And talk about standing out like a sore thumb, right? And the king says, okay, I'm going to give you guys one more chance. And he, he commands that a furnace be, be heated up. And he said, if you don't bow down next time, I'm going to throw you into that furnace. You will die if you don't do what I say. And I love the response of these guys. They said, O king, our God is able to save us from your hand. And he will. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down to your statue. You want faith? That's faith. We don't care what it costs. We don't care what you think we should do. We care what our God says we should do. Our God says to say no to this, to say no to you. And he's able to save us, but even if he doesn't, no. And, of course, the king got furious, demanded the furnace be heated up even more, throws three guys in, and looks in a few minutes later and said, didn't I throw three guys in there? How come there's four walking around? And, of course, they survived we're going to talk about that fourth guy in just a few minutes. So what do we have here? We have a pretty amazing list of names, a pretty amazing list of wins. And this part ends with a phrase that women even receive back their dead by resurrection. That was really, really rare in the Old Testament. It's rare all the time, but it happened. Given the list of all these great victories, all these wins, putting armies to flight and quenching the power of fire Who wouldn't sign up? I want to be a part of that kind of life. If that's where the life of faith leads, to those kinds of victories, yes, I'm there. But fasten your seatbelt, because there's another surprise waiting for us at the finish line. The second surprise is about suffering. There's surprising suffering at the finish line of this chapter of faith. I'm going to read starting at verse 35, the second half, because now listen to the change. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Can you see the change? (laughs) 
It goes from putting armies to flight to being sawn in two. Not quite the same category, (laughs) right? From amazing wins to painful losses, from incredible victory to incredible suffering. And sadly, this part of the life of faith might be a surprise to us. But I can tell you who it wouldn't be a surprise for. Wouldn't be a surprise for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. People who share our faith, but not our freedom. Right now, as we speak, they're experiencing this very kind of suffering in places where they live. We know that because just a few weeks ago, we had our friend Jamal here from Jordan talking about the people he deals with on a daily basis. People who were told by ISIS that they had 24 hours to convert, flee, or die. And so they left everything they had in Iraq, found themselves in Amman, Jordan, with nothing. Talk about destitute. But in the area of Jamal's ministry, so he could reach out to them. Those folks wouldn't be surprised by this passage. In the last few weeks since February, in the nation of Nigeria, which has been a hotbed of Christian persecution for the last few years, the jihadist group Boko Haram has killed up to 280 Christians depending on whose reports you believe. The numbers are all over the place. But it's another outbreak of Christians dying for their faith in Nigeria. In China, the news has been, just in the last month, the persecution of our fellow Christians in China is at an all-time high, higher than it's been in decades in that country. For none of those people would this part of the verse be a surprise. It's part of their life. Sadly, for us in America, this might surprise us because there is a branch of Christianity in our country that has been so Americanized, sorry for the word, that the teaching is if you have the right kind of faith or pray the right kind of prayer, God will bless you materially. God will make you rich. God will make you healthy. God will heal you. He must. He's obligated to give you what you want if you give him what he wants. It flips the relationship from us being God's servant to him being ours. There's a lot of names for it. Prosperity gospel is the most common one. And you can turn on the TV at any time and probably hear preachers telling you that. And they won't read this passage. They won't tell you, you know, sometimes the cost of faith, the cost of faith means you suffer for it. It's been true for 2,000 years. It's only in America that people think that's not true. You won't hear that here, folks. And I hope we'll develop a discernment to recognize it when we hear it somewhere else and say, you know what? That's not faith. That's magic. That's not faith. Don't get me started. I'd spend an hour on this in a cent. (laughs) So come to that sometime. So there is a surprising element of suffering at the finish line. But in the midst of all of this, this suffering, there's an amazing jewel. God describes these people who paid that price, and he says about them, the world was not worthy of them. Wow. How's that for a phrase? Do you want God to look at you and say, the world is not worthy of you? I want God to look at me and see me that way. I want my faith to follow the example of the faith of these folks, to be ready to pay a price if I have to pay a price. To pay a cost if God requires that of me, as he has throughout history. I want that kind of faith. I want to be in that group about whom God himself says, the world 
was not worthy of them. I want God to evaluate me that way. So there's surprising names at the finish line, people, the surprising suffering at the finish line, and then there's some surprising news at the finish line, which continues in verse 39. It says, and all these, though commended... Oh, we've got to go back one. No, that's right. My bad. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, now think about that for a minute. What is this passage saying? Two little verses at the tail end of this incredible list of awesome names and incredible moments and great power and great commitment and great suffering, God says this? God says that they needed us? These folks, Moses, Enoch, Abraham, David, they need us? They weren't made complete until we came along? Seriously? That's exactly what it says, friends. As good as they were, they needed us because... They were waiting for the fulfillment of a promise that they never saw. They knew that day was coming. They looked forward to it. They yearned for it even, some passages say. They never got it. They had something good. We have something better. They were looking ahead to a moment, friends, that we look back on. And they were yearning for a kind of life that you and I live every day. What in the world is this passage even talking about? Well, happily, we don't have to guess because the thought continues in the next chapter. And this is one of those moments where I hope we recognize chapter breaks are not inspired in our Bibles. They were added later on so we could break up the ideas. And sometimes they come at kind of unfortunate places. I didn't realize till this week that this is one of those, in my mind, an unfortunate chapter break. Because really the beginning of chapter 12 completes the thought of Hebrews 11, because the something that we have that they didn't is clarified when we talk about the one we look to at the finish line. Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the folks we've been talking about, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. There it is. He's what we have that they didn't. He's the one we know that they couldn't. He's the one they look forward to that we look back on and that we get to know and walk with every day. And they didn't have that privilege. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What an amazing summary. And and verse 1 gives us this image, right, of of the Olympics. It's as if there's a stadium full of spectators. And believe it or not, the spectators are the people we've just talked about all through chapter 11. And and they're held up. I I don't know how literal this is. People take it in different ways, but let's go with literal. There's a stadium full of people watching us race. And they're surrounding us, and they're cheering us on, and they're glad that we have what we have. The power that comes with knowing Jesus, the forgiveness, the connection with God, the filling of the Holy Spirit, all of that we have. And they want us to run well. And and, and the verse calls us to run with endurance the race that is before us. That's our goal, to run well. And 
In order to run well, it says, we have to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us. Now, I'm not a runner. I'm a hiker. But I've never seen a runner succeed wearing a backpack. Have you? Ever watched the Olympics and seen a, a sprinter with a backpack, 30-pound pack with a sleeping bag? <laughs> of course not. They know better than that. They want to get rid of whatever slows them down to keep them from running their race well. And that image is given to us because we've got a race of faith to run ourselves. We've got the examples who are now in the stands around us. We've got the race God sets before us. And we're called to look at our lives and say, what gets in the way? What keeps me from running my race well? What what do I have to strip myself of? An attitude, a sin, a a, a mindset. What has to change about me that will make me succeed in the race of faith that God has put in front of me? I guarantee there's something in your life that needs to go. It's what you're thinking about right now because the Holy Spirit just brought it to your mind. So ask yourself, am I allowing that sin to cling to me, slowing me down, keeping me from running the way I should with endurance? If so, take it off. Throw it away. Get some help if you need help to do that. Some of these things we can't do by ourselves. Most, I think, we need help with. But the verse couldn't be clearer. We're called to run that kind of race, to run it with endurance, to to not just sprint and, oh, I'm exhausted, I can't go any further. No, keep going, keep running. And happily, we're given an example for that race. Looking to Jesus, the verse says, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who is the ultimate example? Hebrews 11 is full of good examples. Here's the best example. Why? Because... He ran the perfect race. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus Christ said, this is the path God has chosen for me. This is what my father has called me to do. And I'm going to pay the cost. I'm going to lay myself out on a cross. I'm going to bleed to death because that's what it takes in my case. And everyone walking by the road for six hours is going to think I'm a criminal. That I've done something wrong. People didn't die on crosses for being good guys. They died on crosses for being bad guys. And everyone's going to think, I'm a bad guy. And I don't care. Jesus says, I don't care. This is the race. This is the task. My God, my Father has given me. And I'm going to run it with endurance. Nothing's going to get in the way, Jesus said, of me completing this race. And the result was the Father was pleased with him. The Father honors him. The Father sees to it that every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim that this Jesus is Lord. He ran his race perfectly. And he's our example. He's the one we look to. Put yourself in the place of those kids at the Diamondbacks game last Sunday, running around. You can forget about the hot dog outfits if it makes you feel better. But they're, they're running, and at a certain point, we can't tell when in the video, they see their dad. They know that their dad is at the finish line. The last one they expected. And do you think that made them run slower? I don't. Do you think when they saw their dad, they still looked into the, fa- into the stands and waved at folks? Hey, this is me. I'm in a hot dog suit. No. Fixed on dad. Running toward dad. Can't wait to be with dad. Knowing dad was there made them run better. Knowing Jesus is with you. 
Knowing Jesus ran the perfect race. Knowing Jesus is in you so you can run the perfect race like he did, run a better race, getting made more perfect all the time, can only make you run better. Can only make you say, that's what I want to go toward that person, toward that finish line. Friends, it's it's five weeks of these appeals, five weeks of these examples. What should we do with all of this? Uh, Don't leave it here. What should we do tomorrow? What should we do Tuesday? Because we've been studying these examples, these people. Well, I want us to come away, not just from this sermon, but from these five weeks, with one big idea in mind. And it's a pretty simple five-word statement. God is smarter than me. It's not rocket science, is it? God is smarter than me. Do you believe that? Let's say it aloud together. Sometimes that helps. Ready? God is smarter than me. One more time, louder. God is smarter than me. We know that's true. But do we know that's true? Because if we know it's true, then when he calls us to do things or believe things that seem odd or costly or confusing, we'll still say, that's what I need to do. That's the examples. That's what they did. Hey, hey, Abraham, <laughs> you're not so. You don't, know, you don't know where you're going. Why would you leave home and not know where you're going to stop? Well, Abraham says, God's smarter than me. Hey, Noah, you dummy. You're building a boat where? To do what? Well, God is smarter than me. Friends, that should be our response. When we come across things that demand faith, that Jesus walked on water and rose from the dead, yeah, God is smarter than me. And he tells me to run my family in a certain way, that the roles of husbands and wives and kids and the institution he developed called the family, that he has some guidelines for us, some commandments to follow, to go against the grain of where we are today in our culture. Yeah, God's smarter than me. When it comes to sexual purity, in a a context, in a culture where that idea is laughed at, and they put people on TV who are 27-year-old virgins and everybody chuckles, wow, how'd that happen? Okay, is God smarter than me or not? If he is, and he invented sex, I'm going to do what he says. Even if it's costly and I have to sacrifice. Even if people think it's stupid and make fun of me. God is smarter than me. And if you've already crossed that line, okay, get forgiveness for it and start today saying, in this area of my life, God is smarter than me. When it comes to forgiving my enemies, come on, people don't do that. Uh, Yeah, they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our ultimate example forgave his enemies. And God calls us to. He's smarter than me. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of your neighbors. Those who look like you and those who don't. Those who vote like you and those who don't. Those who talk like you Feel free. Those who talk like you and those who don't. What if the entire church of Jesus Christ said, yeah, that love my neighbor thing, yeah, God means it. And he's smarter than me. And because he's smarter than me, with his help and with the Holy Spirit living in me, I'm going to know he's smarter than me. 
And my life is going to show that he's smarter than me. Is that your goal? It is mine. Lord, would you make it our goal? And not just a goal. Would you make it true? Would you impress on us through these examples and so many others (laughs) that you're smarter than us, that you know better than us, that your plan is better than our plan by a mile, that even when it's costly and even when it's hard and even when people think we're nuts, that we will live a life that shows God is smarter than me. Lord, we are incapable left to ourselves to do that. We, we are not that strong. But thank you that these examples weren't that strong either by themselves. They all had you. And we have you in ways they didn't. Would you show us, Lord Jesus, how to live lives that reveal the faith and flesh out our confidence in you? That you know better than us. You're smarter than us. And you show us how to live lives that will bring you honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.